City Image. All right, what's going on? Welcome to City Image. This is Andy, Young Nassau County. And this is Clay, a.k.a. John L. Sterling. You ain't got any more AKAs? I want at least three more AKAs right now. AKA, what if uh, Donald Sterling was black? AKA, Young Justice. AKA, what's that smell? And uh, <laughs> we are here with a interview of a legend in the game, Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove. Uh, this is a guy who's been in the mix doing the Lord's work out there for decades now he is one of the leaders of the poor people's campaign he recently wrote a book called revolution of values reclaiming public faith for the common good now just meditate on that title for a second and you already know that this is going to be an amazing interview that's timely that's needed especially in the weeks leading up to the election and so we had a really great conversation with jonathan um, he is just such an insightful uh, man of God, and and he really um, he really walks the walk. And so the stuff that he's going to be talking about in this interview is not just theory, but it's really what does it look like to live out our faith in the public square for the good of the least of these. So yeah, man, Clay, what did what are you excited about the people hearing from from this uh, interview? Uh yeah, uh, I'm really excited for people to hear what happens when you step outside of the norms of our society and and just get to talk to people. You know, a lot of what Jonathan, how, how God has revealed so much of what is now he considers truth. Uh, it, it came from him just having interactions with people, with people, with people that don't look like him. And I wish as a nation we can get back, not back, because we've never really been there, but get to a place where we can just talk to each other as people and learn and and take a a humble sense. Maybe maybe you don't know everything. You thought you did. You were taught these things, but maybe the things that you were taught were wrong. And and the only way to to find that out for yourself is to go and and sit at at a lunch table with people that don't look like you. It's, it's um, almost like our faith is fleshed out and understood when we live it out. That's novel. It, is it? Wow. Isn't that a, a brand new idea? I'm going to write a book on that. Um, it's brilliant. Well, we got one. <laughs> we got one. We got one here for you. It's called Revolution of <laughs> Values. Um, yeah. So this book, um, I mean, it covers poverty, immigration, the environment, war, uh, so-called law and order, and um it is really brilliant. He talks a lot about how faith has been hijacked by political movements and bastardized, if you will. Um, but we also had a great conversation with him and, and me and Clay talk about this a lot. But what does it look like if you are deconstructing aspects of your faith? What does it look like to reconstruct? Uh, what does it look like um, to really discern who is God when there's so much fog in the mix. Yeah. And, and, and also how, how to even deconstruct without throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Cause I think that's, that's what we tend to do as Christians. Um, 
uh, or some Christians rather, uh, once you start to deconstruct and start to question the things that you were taught, it's kind of, it's almost easier to throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's not what Jonathan does. Um, I really respect and appreciate uh, where the way he, he approaches these, these topics. Um, so hopefully you guys get something out of this that will cause you to think, uh, but hopefully my, my secret hope is cause you to pursue uh, God more honestly and so uh, and more and, and, and humbly. So, uh, yeah, hope hope you guys really enjoy this one. I, I was definitely blessed by uh, just speaking with Jonathan. Side note, I listened to Jonathan's book on Audible and that's not his voice uh, at all. Uh, he's a very southern man uh, with a with a wonderful accent. The guy I was listening to did not sound like him, and so I, I definitely yeah, shared it with him. I, I, like, I, I heard, heard that one. audible book. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I heard like, that. I, I heard that like. man's before. Yeah. So, so yeah. yeah, they both got nice voices. They both do have nice voices, and they're both, I'm sure, wonderful human beings. But uh, uh, yeah, is is but it was great. It was great. Hope you guys enjoy it. It's been real. It's been real doing this introduction with you, Clay. I'm it's excited. It's real doing this with you, Andy. Yeah, man. Sure. I love when we get to do a nice introduction together. Really... <laughs> so, st- so keep it locked. The book is called Revolution of Values. Uh, we got. Well, we're gonna put the link in the show notes, and so you see it somewhere. You know yeah. it's there. Yeah. So, uh, so keep it locked, and I also want to exhort you to stay grounded in these times. You were listening to City Image. Mm, and we will, we will see you in just a moment. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel that is, that is where I'm at. I think I need to get grounded. What is up, family? It's Brian, the Theological Giant. I just want to thank all of you for listening to the City Image podcast. Your continued support gives us the ability to produce faith-based content that is relevant to the urban context. If you haven't already, subscribe to City Image so that you won't miss any of our episodes. You can subscribe to our podcast on every major platform, including Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribing, rating, and reviewing our podcast helps us grow our audience. Also, if you've been blessed by our work, please consider sharing our content with friends and on social media. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The City Image and make sure to like the City Image Facebook page as well. Lastly, feel free to email any feedback, thoughts, and comments on any of our episodes at cityimagepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for joining us on City Image. Oh, thank you. It's a joy to be here. You have a very interesting story and one which I think will be very form, uh, informative for the folks listening. Obviously, the conversation about the religious right and the influence of the religious right on the American church is one that is as pervasive as ever. Um, but a lot of times, I think being a Christian in New York City or not being in that context, it's sort of like this thing that's happening somewhere else that impacts us, but we're not really sure how to process it. But you actually had a lot of experiences right in the middle of that. You uh, talked about how you 
uh, worked for Strom Thurmond at one point and you uh, grew up in this context. And so could you tell us a little bit about your story and a little bit of, about your journey and what led you to the activism and the kind of reframing of your faith? Yes, indeed. Um, so I was born in tobacco country in North Carolina, just down the road from Mayberry. I don't know if any of your listeners ever see the reruns on Nickelodeon, uh, but they tell me five or six million people still watch the Andy Griffith show every yeah. day. Uh, it was based on the little town where my granny and Andy Griffith grew up in North Carolina. Wow. Uh, the real place is called Mount Airy. Our family's only claim to fame uh, in truth is that our uncle Otis was the town drunk on that show. Uh, so, so that's who we are. And I grew up there. I was born the Sunday morning after Ronald Reagan was elected president for the first time. Uh, and though I did not know it at the time, I have since come to understand that the uh, religious right, which emerged uh, as the moral majority that supported his Make America Great Again campaign for president, let's never forget uh, that was the first Make America Great Again campaign, Ronald Reagan yeah. from the White House. Um, uh, the moral majority uh, was organized with um, political operatives from what was called the new right at the time to target communities like mine and recruit us into a voting coalition that would not vote based on our race, but based on our religious values. Hmm. And so I was raised up in that mix, you know, in, in, um, by dear people who love Jesus and wanted me to love Jesus, taught me the Bible. Uh, I'm deeply grateful for not just my parents and my family, but my Sunday school teachers and that community that raised me. However, uh, I, I don't think most of them uh, or any of us were aware of the incredible amount of money that was being invested in shaping our political imagination to connect our faith with not just Republican politics, but a, but a pretty extreme version of um, a political power that was really about, um, ultimately, I think it was about pushing back against the gains of the civil rights movement and the women's rights movements of the 60s and 70s. Mm -hmm. So that's where I grew up. And I was, um, I was an earnest kid who wanted to do all I could for Jesus. So I got recruited by several of these organizations to be a kind of a, a foot soldier in the culture wars. And that's how I ended up um, uh, being a page for Strom Thurmond, the one-time Dixiecrat candidate for president. Uh, that was 1948. Uh, 50 years later, he was still in the Senate, <laughs> and I worked in his office as a teenager. Yeah, mm. yeah. yeah. And, and, and for our listeners, can, can you tell us a little bit about what a page is, as you mentioned that? Yeah, I, well, I was just trying to figure out how I could become president of the United States. That was my sole goal. And I knew that I didn't have nearly enough connections, you know, to begin climbing the ladder. But I thought if I could uh, if I could get to the Naval Academy, that would be the place to start. Because Jimmy Carter, that peanut farmer from Georgia, had gone to the Naval Academy. So that was kind of my first goal was to get there. And then I, I learned that you had to have a senator's recommendation to even go to the Naval Academy. Mm. So that's when I started looking into this thing and learned that... Um, uh, high school students serve in the offices of senators on Capitol Hill, uh, essentially as um, people to run errands and 
uh, you know, clean up the office and such. So uh, I lived on Capitol Hill with the Senate pages in the uh, dormitory that's there and worked in Strom Thurmond's office in the fall of 1997. Mm, Yeah. And and, and you're still deeply animated by your faith. um, But the way that your faith is taking form looks a lot different now than it did in you know the times that you've just told us yes, about indeed, and so yes, indeed what 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 happened what what was responsible for you having a shift uh or realizing perhaps that that Jesus wasn't calling you down the road that you were on well at se- at 17 years old i hit a dead end with this uh, religious right and its uh, simplistic connection of Christian faith with uh, um, extreme conservatism. Uh, I hit that dead end because I realized that the very things my Sunday school teachers had made me memorize that Jesus said uh, didn't line up with what the politics was actually working towards, which was uh, greater power for corporations, uh, more money for the military, and um, less regulation uh, for businesses to, you know, keep them from doing whatever they wanted to. Uh, That actually looked a lot more like what the Bible calls greed when I saw it up close and personal. And the reason uh, I, you know, that was in in my own life uh, almost 25 years ago now, but the reason I felt compelled to tell this story now is the disillusionment that I experienced as a teenager Uh, is one that I meet Christians every day Mm. who are dealing with now and in in particular in the wake of the election of Donald Trump with the support of 81% of white evangelicals and frankly, most white Christians, the support of most white Christians. So when in 2016, when the brother who was endorsed by the KKK was supported by most white Christians, this was a a kind of a wake-up call for many Christians, both um, white and people of color, because the people of color had to start saying, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. You mean you're in the church? You're my sister and brother in the church, but it's not disqualifying if someone is endorsed by the KKK? Mm. Uh, So so this has been the conversation, as we all know, for the last four years. And I, I felt compelled to tell this story because at that moment of my disillusionment, I was invited into a different way of connecting my faith with politics, in particular by my brother, the Reverend William Barber, who was a pastor here in North Carolina at that time, and who began to teach me the tradition that he had inherited of black Christians in the South, who had been part of a freedom movement, an interracial freedom movement. It had, it had, had black and white folks in it since way back in the abolitionist era. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, that said that our faith is always about pursuing justice in public life and that to get your faith right in politics, you can't be beholden to any political party. You have to be beholden to the poor and rejected people of the society that you're in. And that takes different shape at different times. But if you're not listening to the poor and rejected people of the society that you're in, then there's no way you can be Christian in that society. Mm-hmm. That's what I learned from Reverend Barber. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you, in your book, um, Revolution of, of Values, you, you say, and quote, what is the page? Page five. You well, say, you I went Page numbers and everything. Go ahead. <laughs> page number and everything. 
and I just lost the page. But you you said uh I went I went AWOL when I realized Jesus was present to me in the people that I had been taught to fear. Could you could you unpack that? Cause I well while I, I was I was listening to it, because uh, you know, I'm a New Yorker and we're always on the move, so I'm listening to the audiobook. All right. Which I was super <laughs> hearing you speak for the first time on this podcast. And well, whoever they got to record that, I was like, that's not what I was expecting. I, I'm, I'm it's a different voice. <laughs> it's a completely different voice. Um, <laughs> and I love it. I think it's, I think it's he's um, a good brother, though. After he read it, he reached out to me and thanked me for it. He, he's a good <laughs> really? I got to know him a little bit. That's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I'd love for you to unpack that yeah, given um given what you just said. I, I think there's this there's this as a black person, as a black Christian, I I it's it's I feel like I can almost reach out and grab this this feeling that I get from white evangelicals of, of, of this fear of some of the things that are really important to me, like justice, right? There's this fear. Um I've got a I've got a friend uh, uh, in my church who I love this guy and I know he loves me, you know. But the moment we start talking about anything social justice or whatever, he he's he's in anger. And I'm like, you can't be more mad than me. My my people suffered from this stuff, but yeah. but regardless, um, I'm 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 loving having conversations with my white brothers and sisters who are who are starting to like turn this corner and and understand reality from a different vantage point. And so I'd love for you to unpack that statement just the idea that Jesus is is present when you realize Jesus was present in the people who taught who you were taught to fear. Yeah. Well, as a Christian, I think it's critically important for us to understand that Fear has been used as a political tactic to uh, recruit us into a voting coalition. Uh, so you got to go back and you got to understand where that fear came from. And I think to really understand that, you have to go back to 1968 in this country when um, uh, in the primary, uh, George Wallace was running against Richard Nixon. And as George Wallace, who was well known for being a defiant segregationist as governor of Alabama, as he left the South and began to go around the country uh, trying to build a national political base, he uh, spoke to white people in the suburbs of Michigan, of Illinois, of Indiana. He spoke to people in Madison Square Garden right there in New York City. And he talked to them about how uh, they were being uh, pushed out and left behind by these uh, radicals and socialists and folks who were trying to change their way of life. And he uh, hit on this theme of law and order. And what Richard Nixon and his campaign advisors saw in that is that that touched on the fears of white voters so much that Nixon was not going to win in 68 unless he picked up that uh, tactic. And so it became uh, an essential part of what's called the Southern strategy. But the Southern strategy is really about using those racial fears to unite a white voting coalition in the South, in the suburbs, and across the Sun Belt, you know, into Arizona and California. 
And by uniting that coalition, the theory of Kevin Phillips and others who developed that for the Republican Party was that they could hold on to the white vote for 50 years. Well, here we are 50 years later, and then the reality is that's what they've done. They've held a white voting coalition together. However, uh, the browning of America and the decline in the uh, um, uh, percentage of the population that is uh, white eligible voters has decreased to the point where this strategy is in a crisis. And in 2016, that strategy uh, could only be sustained by uh, ramping it up in the way that Donald Trump did. So I think it's, it's really important. So there's so much focus right now on the kind of personality and the quirks of this character, Donald Trump. And let's just be honest, I mean, he's a human being, but he has also created a character. I mean, he sells the name. Donald J. Trump puts it on buildings and a brand. So, so let's just be clear that this character is designed to appeal to the fears that this movement has built on for 40 years. And I think as Christians, it's incredibly important for us to look at that history honestly and then remember what the scriptures say. Every time an angel of the Lord shows up, to anybody in scripture, the first thing they say is, do not be afraid, right? Fear not. Don't be afraid. You've got to uh, uh, figure out what it means to follow Jesus in public life by listening to the people whose cries God hears. And from the Exodus all the way through the ministry of Jesus in the early church in scripture, the cries of those who are suffering from injustice are the cries that God hears. And when we listen to those cries and, and, and act in public in ways that lift up those voices and that work for justice for those voices, we are doing God's work. And that, that, doesn't, that, that, that doesn't have anything to do with political ideology or party. I mean, you've got to make a choice in every situation, you know, which side you're going to stand on. But this is not fundamentally about a partisan difference. This is about uh, where are our values and who do they lead us to listen to? Mm. I think that's a challenge that the church in America is facing right now. That is good. That is good. Um, I think uh, it is interesting how uh, we have a very short memory in our country and we forget how much these themes we, we forget that nothing is new under the sun and we forget that, uh, you know, these themes uh, that we're dealing with right now are kind of, uh, I mean, they've been repeated on cycle. It feels like every 15 or 20 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that gives so much contextualization to what we are going through right now. Um, you, you know, in you talking about fear, um, I do believe that fear is such a driving force right now and it does almost feel like a like an insurmountable stumbling block for a lot of people that they're afraid to let go of control they're afraid to let things kind of happen without maintaining um political control without maintaining cultural control there's a lot of anxiety and and i sympathize with that and i think about how uh, how people are marks and targets for so much political uh, propaganda and so much political messaging that on an individual level, it's, it's hard. It's hard. 
I mean, I, I, I can understand why people feel the way they do. And so I guess um, from your perspective, speaking to those people, how do you suggest they get out of that cycle of fear? How do you suggest that white evangelicals uh, step into a new yeah, that's, uh, that is a new a setting with, you know, like without, without being afraid, you know, what do you suggest? That's a critical question. Well, we, the scriptures tell us that love drives out fear. So uh, how do we love in public in such a way that we can get beyond the lies that have stirred up these fears? Um, I mean, we could start by some truth telling. A lot of the reasons people have been given uh, to vote, you know, reflexively uh, with the religious right um, are just not true. But this sort of uh, absolutizing of, um, of, uh, of a political point of view to say that anyone who's on the other side is, uh, you know, not only disagreeing with you and your take on that, but is uh, evil, murderous. Uh, Franklin Graham will often say, I've heard him say it often, uh, uh, that progressives are atheists. Well, no, pro progressives are people who have a particular, you know, viewpoint in terms of how the Constitution should be interpreted, uh, how we should engage matters in public life. But progressives are everything from, you know, Baptists to Methodists to Roman Catholics to atheists to agnostics. There's no religious requirement to be a progressive. Brother Franklin Graham is just wrong about that. That's a lie. Progressives are not, some, some atheists are progressives, but progressivism does not make you atheist any more than being a Republican makes you a Christian. So we just got to, we just got to uh, uh, tell the truth and see through those lies. And I think the number one way to do it is again, to go back to what Jesus taught us, to love, in particular, to love the people who are hurt by the policies that have been justified with this fear. And so what I tried to do in this book, Revolution of Values, was simply tell the stories of people I've gotten to know who've been hurt by the so-called values of the movement that I was you know, raised up and groomed in. Uh, I tell the stories of you know, uh, immigrants and undocumented people who have been demonized and, uh, and, and forced into just cruel situations by um, uh, people who have, uh, have, have, you know, in calling them evil, uh, have really created unlivable situations for them. Uh, I tell the stories of uh, uh, women who've, you know, in their uh, attempt to... Uh, um, have children and take care of their own reproductive health have faced incredible obstacles because of the extremism around the abortion issue. Tell the stories of people who are facing extreme ecological devastation and the destruction of, of places that are sacred to them. I, one of those stories I tell is of a Native American community down in Arizona. And all of that because uh, people who call themselves values voters have empowered politicians who have simply handed the land and responsibility of the land over to corporations whose only responsibility is to make money. So on issue after issue, I've tried to tell the stories of people who I've known, who, and I think those stories and knowing those people and listening 
to the reality of their lives uh, reveals that we have to uh, um, we have to change our assumptions about what it means to vote values in public life. That's why uh, Dr. King was absolutely right. We need a revolution of values mm. because at the end of the day, what I think we see when we look honestly at both our history and the landscape in this country right now is that this white voting block that has been uh, spoken to and directed in terms of religious values is the most dangerous force in the country in terms of uh, uh, sustaining a democracy. Mm. And that is a, that is a sad reality. Sad, and, it, and it's not because the you know white Christian people are evil as a group. It's because white Christian people have been lied to as a group for forty years. Yeah, that yeah, that's that's hard, right? When I I I, I wish that in my conversation, because I I really believe as as a black man, for me, it is important to talk to my white brothers and sisters to seek to understand, right? Because I, on face value. You know, the things that I hear, they're, they're not the things that I would have heard maybe 60 years ago, mm. but they're very familiar, mm. right? They, they feel very similar. And, and, and part of me wants to go, don't you know, how do you not know that you've been lied to mm. for, 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 for the entirety of America existing, that you have been lied to about, about what, what this country really is, is for, you know, who it's for. And so it feels like I'm often banging my head up against the wall because I can't even get to a place of objective truth or, or just objective fact um, with folks about what is it like to experience this country in my, in my skin. Yeah. And so I feel like it's, it's, it's deeper than just people being lied to. It's a willingness to believe the lie because there's so much evidence that would suggest otherwise. Yeah. And so how, how did those walls come down for you? I'm assuming that you had those walls up, but yeah. in the context of where you, where you grew up and how you grew up and, 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 and reading your book, there, there were these moments of awakening where you realized Oh, like life is different than what I've I've experienced. What 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 brought you there? How how what broke down those walls for you? And and can you speak to those who who are not ready to make that leap yet? Well, thank you. I appreciate you raising this issue because you're you're right. It's not just uh, to say that people have been lied to is not to say that people don't have a responsibility, <laughs> right? And uh, I think you are right that. Um, whiteness, which is itself a lie, but it's a very prevalent lie that's been with us for centuries now. Um, whiteness itself has created a, um, a a kind of resistance in our very bodies to um, the to grappling with the truth of other people's reality. And you're absolutely right that I, just by virtue of growing up in this society, uh, had and still have that resistance within me. And um, I think the thing that has, the, the one thing that has made it possible for me to learn to see the world differently is that uh, I have been loved. 
I've been loved by people who were willing to take risk and to build interracial coalitions to work for justice. And those people taught me that that tradition has always existed in this country. And that as a matter of fact, uh, we would not have a democracy, nor would we have a church with any semblance of faithfulness in this country if we had not had those traditions. You go back and look at every genuine move toward a more perfect union in this nation's history and what you'll find working at the heart of it, not always well known, but working, working faithfully over decades, was people from different backgrounds, white, black, others, coming together, often inspired by their faith, to push the nation forward. That was the abolitionist struggle. That was the struggle for women's rights. That was the struggle for labor rights. Uh, I mean, you know, you can say what you want about the theology and the sort of uh, uh, doctrinal commitments of the social gospel. The practical reality is there were Christian ministers and lay folks on the ground, motivated by their faith, who worked for uh, labor rights in this country, who worked for a new deal. Uh, Sister Frances Perkins, you know, sat on uh, Franklin Roosevelt's cabinet, uh, motivated by her faith to try to uh, create a government that served the people. And that's the heart of uh, what we call the civil rights movement, that, that this is folks who came together, white folks and black folks, you know, Christian and Jewish folks, um, uh, poor folks and people, who, you know, of means who had a conscience and who wanted to see change happen. So those coalitions and the movements that they have built are what give me hope that people can change. Mm. So um, you start the book off on the U.S.-Mexico border. And, you know, you tell us, uh, you give an account of when you were present with someone reuniting with her family. Um, what does the border represent to you as a place to start uh, this conversation about the revolution of values? Why did you decide to open the book with that? Um, and what is the significance of what's been happening at the border that's indicative of the fact that we do need a revolution of values? Well, that's a great question. Thank you for asking. Uh, I, um, I would encourage your listeners to uh, read closely what Pope Francis just released this past weekend, his new encyclical. Uh, it's, um, it's called Brothers and Sisters All. It's sort of a vision of uh, what we need to do in order to be a human family in this moment. But one of the things he points to is the uh, danger to the Christian faith that uh, nationalist movements around the world pose. And um, these movements are, of course, a response to genuine crises, right? Uh, the migrant crisis that we're seeing all around the world right now is um, about an economy that has created extreme inequality that makes it impossible for some people to live in the places where they are accustomed to living. It's about the global climate crisis, which is now and increasingly will push more and more people out of the places where they have traditionally lived. And so this, this, this 
crisis of people having to find a new place to live has created a kind of reactionary fear in some places, a nationalism that says we've got to draw firm borders and make sure those people stay out uh, so that our people can be safe. And uh, what Pope Francis said so clearly is that you can have different ideas about how to address the crisis. You might say we should invest in making it easier for people to live in the places they're leaving. Or you might say that we need to take more measures to welcome people into the places where they're coming. That's an honest political disagreement. However, if that fear that's created by these extreme nationalist movements here in this country and in other places makes it impossible for us to imagine that that we are called to, as Jesus said, welcome the stranger, right? And uh, uh, in as much as you know, you did not welcome the stranger. You did not welcome me. Jesus says, if that's a if that's a matter of faith for Christians, then this is a this is a genuine faith crisis. So that's that's why I began at the border with this story, and with because I wanted to lift up uh, the story of Maria, the sister there, who invited us into the ongoing struggle she has been in to keep her family together and wanted uh, I wanted people to see the faith out of which that comes. And uh, it seemed to be an invitation to reread the scriptures along these lines, because literally when we got out of the river there on the other side in Juarez, someone has written on the mountain in White Rocks, um, the Bible is the word of God read it. And so I kind of took that as a call to go back and reread, you know, the, the, the very text that has in so many cases been used to justify the oppression of people, read it through their eyes and read it as a text that invites us to work for uh, the liberation of all people and for justice in our common life. Mm. Yeah. And I, you know, I think, um, I mean, obviously as you mentioned in terms of the climate crisis and, and, you know, the ongoing migrant crisis, how that's only going to increase. Um, this kind of feels like the type of issue where for more and more people, it's going to be, uh, presented as like a zero sum issue where even if you look at some of like the new ideologies of like eco-fascism and, 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 you know, people coming to grips with the reality of climate change, but then responding and saying, okay, well, therefore we need to like really border things up. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it, it does feel like the type of, uh, issue that in order for you to be compassionate, you will need to come to grips with the fact that you cannot be comfortable in a sense. And so perhaps it's a lie that we ever believe that we never needed to sacrifice anything to begin with, but, but how do we in this revolution of values reintegrate the idea that we will, we may be called to sacrifice our comfortability. We may be called to sacrifice uh, our stability. We may be called to sacrifice the things that we treasure that Jesus is calling us to leave behind in order to love and serve the least of these, how, how do we how do we reintegrate that idea back into our politics? You know, it's a it's an honest question, and it's one that you can understand on a human level. You know, uh, none of us likes pain, and you know, uh, none of us uh, enjoys the idea of um, doing with less. As a matter of fact, most of us think we always need a little bit more. That's, that's kind of human nature. 
Uh, I completely understand that. But, you know, it strikes me as, a, as an odd thing in America that uh, Christians can't even conceive of the question. Hmm. Because Jesus said, if anyone would follow me, they're going to have to take up their cross. You know, the Baptist churches I grew up in saying, must Jesus bear his cross alone and all the world go free? No, hmm. there's a cross for everyone and there's a cross for me. This is our faith tradition, right? Yeah. We have been told and we have told ourselves, at least in word, that um, Christian love costs something. Hmm. But another part of that tradition is recognizing that uh, the cost we pay in many ways can uh, tap us in more deeply to a charity that never ends, right? And so part of understanding God's economy is uh, understanding that uh, the, the, the logic and even the calculations of the world don't always make sense. You know, um, just when you thought you'd given everything, uh, you know, God, the God who owns the cattle on a thousand hillside might show up and make available stuff you hadn't even imagined. You know, that's, that's, a, that's a Christian imagination of economics. Um, and so I think we are, um, we are being confronted with the way in which our political realism has uh, kept us from believing many of the things that Jesus taught us. And, um, uh, and, and so in crises, we have to learn again who we are. And I, uh, I am encouraged in this moment because as I talk to Christians around this country and around the world, um, I think some people are beginning, even for the first time, to take seriously what Jesus taught, which is that um, the kingdom of God, a whole new political and economic order, is at hand. If we repent, which means turn around and stop practicing our old ways, and believe, which means trust the new way that Jesus is presenting to us, then um, we might have the potential to participate in what Jesus called eternal life. That means the kind of life that can continue on forever. If nothing else, we ought to be honest about the fact that, that the current political and economic systems cannot continue forever. You know, maybe it's going to, maybe it's going to burn up the world 50 years from now. Maybe it's going to lead to total war in a hundred. I can't tell you exactly how it's going, but it's obvious that the kind of inequality and exploitation that we see in the world right now cannot continue. In such a situation, seems to me that it's incredibly important that some people pay attention to uh, God in human flesh telling us that there's another way to live. In fact, a way of life that can go on forever. That's what eternal life means. So, yeah, I think that answer is really interesting because what you're saying is that all of the resources for us to deal with these present issues are already present in our faith. We just need to rediscover them and, and repent, honestly. But I think there's a lot, and, 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 you know, you mentioned this early in the interview and I want to just circle back to it because I do believe that there is a lot of 
people that they believe that they have a choice and their choice is completely deconstruct my faith and abandon it or follow my conscience where it feels so obvious that I need to care for those who are marginalized. And it seems like you're saying that that's a false choice and you yourself have gone through that personal crisis at a very similar time that we are in now. And so I I would love for you to speak to those people who, because they see the way that the church has been animated in such negative ways regarding politics, they're now walking away from the church and they want to stand for social justice. Thank you. It's, it's, It's a great question. And the first thing I say always to someone who is having that experience is that you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right to be angry that you've been lied to. You're absolutely right to say that this, uh, you know, institution that has led you astray uh, doesn't deserve your unquestioning obedience. That's absolutely right. And anyone who is stuck in uh, a religious institution or relationship uh, that is directly harming them, I think it's incredibly important that they get out and get free from that. Uh, there are forms of Christianity uh, in uh, this country and in other places in the world that are simply death dealing. And people are right to trust their gut and to trust their God who tells them to you know, get away from that. Uh, I always think of Frederick Douglass who said, I prayed for my freedom for 20 years, but God never heard my cries until I prayed with my feet. You know, sometimes you just gotta get up and get out of uh, situations that are oppressive and harmful. However, once people have found a place where they can breathe, once they've found uh, enough of a freedom where they can uh, uh, consider who they are and and what their relationship with God uh, calls them to do, we still have to face this question of what is what is it that's going to bind us together what kind of beloved community are we going to build together? And that's a fundamentally human question, but that's also the question that religion tries to answer. And so I encourage people, you know, don't give up on uh, this this tradition uh, just because some of its most well-known representatives have been such um, uh, bad actors. Uh, because, uh, frankly, um, uh, it's also the case that some of the most inspiring examples we have have also been motivated by the same Jesus and the same message, which is not to say that we shouldn't have uh, open dialogue and be learning from uh, other religious traditions. Um, I'm also completely open to that as well. But at the, at the, at the end of the day, you know, I recognize that... Um, I'm a Christian because God reached out and got hold of me through the people who loved me when I was a very young person. And I'm enmeshed in this story where that faith has motivated people to do the best things that I've experienced and the worst things that I've experienced. And uh, at the end of the day, I think the human reality is that we have to deal with our capacity for both. And so as we deal with the fact that God made us as people, who you know are in God's image and frankly can be uh, you know ministers of God's love here in this earth. Uh, that's a miracle. But the very same people are fallen and broken 
and can do the absolute worst uh, in this earth. And, uh, and, and redemption is the belief that God has, in fact, met us in the midst of that and has already made possible um, the way of life and the uh, community of people who uh, can live God's way in this world. It might not be what we thought it was, right? We might have to discover again what it looks like. But I don't want to give up the hope that it's already there and that I can be part of it. And frankly, it's not just because I believe it, it's because I've seen it. Uh, I had to get out of some of the spaces, you know, where I was used to being. I had to be uncomfortable. But the great gift of my life is that I have met faithful people all over this country who are living a different reality. And that's really the hope that I want to live uh, by sharing these stories and revolution of values. Yeah. How do we begin to reconstruct the way that we're even interacting with each other? How do we reconstruct those ideas, those values? You know, One of the points I'm trying to make with this book is that it makes all the difference in the world who you read the Bible with, right? Um, yeah, for sure. The theologian Karl Barth said we ought to read the Bible. We ought to read with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. He was trying to say that you have to make sense of the world, what's happening in front of you through the lens of Scripture. Uh, but I think it's also the case, and what you're suggesting is that uh, you know people bring with them all kinds of assumptions, often ones they're not even aware of to how they read the scriptures. And so, you know, when we're, when you're reading with the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other, it helps to have some conversation partners, you know, who have experience reading those scriptures from a different point of view. So I, I think one of the most fundamental commitments of basic Christian discipleship ought to be that people find a way in their regular Christian practice, you know, weekly, monthly, however you can find a rhythm to do it, to read the scriptures through which you expect God to speak directly to you with people who are not like you. Um, I think it makes all the difference in the world. That's good. That's good. Well, this is, this will be our last question. Um, and we appreciate Jonathan, the wisdom that you've dropped. Um, I think that we're obviously at a critical month right now where uh, the election's coming up and there's, there's, there's so much else happening in our country. And I think it would be very appropriate in light of your book, in light of your message, if you could share with us maybe a vision for the future, if we actually buy in mm. to this, uh, this, this reclaiming of morality, this, this revolution of values, if we buy into uh, the call of Jesus in the public square. What do you think our society could look like if we do this? Yeah. Well, I think it's important whenever we engage in politics to remember that these are human institutions that are imperfect. So uh, I'm not talking about um, voting in order to bring the kingdom of God in in 2021. Um, uh, however, it doesn't mean that voting doesn't matter, right? Uh, because we have seen and continue to see that who has political power has incredible consequences, um, especially for those who are most vulnerable. 
So whenever we go to vote uh, as Christians, I think voting our values has to be about uh, choosing the people who we think we can most trust with the power, the awesome power of, in our case, the most powerful government in the world um, to shape policy for the common good. And um, that means thinking about all kinds of things, right? Access to healthcare, living wages, uh, the, the, the earth and you know, our environmental policies, um, uh, how we treat the land. It has to do with um, uh, all these things. But I was just earlier this week, uh, I hosted here in North Carolina a town hall for uh, fellow Christians. I particularly invited and challenged uh, white sisters and brothers to listen to it. I said, as we go and want to, you know, make this discernment of voting our values in this election, let's listen to black sisters and brothers say what matters to them. And so I hosted a, a panel and had folks on it. The first thing I asked was, you know, what values are important to you? And the sister who answered first said, uh, I've got to start with voting rights. Because she said, uh, all power in government is in a democracy about who has access to the ballot. And she said, as a black woman in this country, my people have been denied that access consistently in different ways, but consistently throughout this nation's history. And she said, the level of voter suppression and lies that are being told about the election in order to uh, suppress votes uh, is at a point right now where she said, I'm calling on my fellow Christians, whatever the hue of your skin, I'm calling on you to understand voting rights as a fundamental Christian value, she said, because if we believe that every person is created in the image of God, and that's something we all believe, right? It's right there in Genesis 1. If we really believe that, and we live in a society that says every person of a certain age that's part of this society has a right to vote, then the denial of that right to some groups of people is a denial of their personhood, which is a denial of the dignity of, uh, you know, of them being created in God's image. So I would just lift that up, uh, having listened to her just the other day, and having listened to so many African-American sisters and brothers who... Uh, have, have experienced the reality of voter suppression, uh, I think that's something we should think about when we go to vote. Uh, whose votes are being suppressed and, uh, and why? Who wants to hold on to power? I think that's a critical question. I just want to say, Jonathan, I uh, really appreciate you, your work. Um, for those who are listening, Jonathan is a very, very, smart, intelligent individual who has co-authored well, over a dozen books, written and co-authored over a dozen books. Um, I really appreciate this conversation. I, I appreciate your perspective. As a Black man speaking to a white man, both of us who are Christians, to have this kind of open conversation about these topics is uh, uh, really nourishing to my soul at a time where uh, everything seems to be taking away uh, uh, the health of that very same soul. So I, I appreciate this conversation. I appreciate your work, your books, and, and everything that oh, you it's do. It's a great honor to be with you. Thank you. Likewise, yeah. How can people find out more about the Poor People's Campaign real quick? 
please. Um, this is a uh, broad movement across the country to bring people together and lift up, in particular, the voices of poor and marginalized people. It's called poorpeoplescampaign.org on the internet, and you can register there to learn more about the work in your state and, uh, and what we're doing across the country. We've got a big push right now to in particular make sure that poor and low income people have access to the ballot in this election. Um, uh, poor and low income people have voted uh, uh, at about 20 percentage points lower than their higher income neighbors uh, for several decades now. And that has everything to do with uh, both access to the ballot and with the fact that many politicians from both the Republican and the Democratic Party uh, don't speak to issues that uh, concern poor people and haven't, uh, haven't promised anything that would motivate people to vote. Mm -hmm. So we've been trying to do both, both to make sure that their uh, voting rights are protected and to press politicians to commit uh, to policies that would make a real difference. We've been hosting Senate candidate forums uh, around the country. Uh, we had uh, a presidential candidate forum uh, which Donald Trump opted not to speak to, but Joe Biden did, and um, and did speak to you know some policies that he's ready to push if he's president to raise the living wage, to reduce debt, uh, to uh, um, uh, make um, uh, environmental protections and addressing the climate crisis a a big part of uh, his administration. So, whatever the race, whatever the issue, we're, we're trying to lift up you know things that impact poor, low-income people and make sure those folks can vote. Amen. Well, the book is called Revolution of Values. Jonathan, thank you so much. We really appreciate you being on City Image. Thank you all. Good to be with you. City Image.